Today's scripture reading is going to come from Genesis chapter 12. I invite you to turn over there with me. Genesis chapter 12, this is uh, part of our Bible reading plan. If you haven't jumped in on that yet, I want to encourage you to do so. You will find uh, blue books like this one that's on the table here in the foyer and in the back. And you can pick one of those up and uh, you can jump in on the Bible reading plan. My encouragement to you is if you haven't joined us yet, just pick up on today's reading and then catch up in the days to come. And uh, if you just do that every day and then pick up a few, you'll be in good shape. And one of the things, if you have been on the plan, then you read these uh, chapters this week. And so we're going to be taking a look at Genesis chapter 12. And this is a turning point in the scriptures early on because we are talking about Abraham, the father of the faith. So it reads in verse 1, the Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse. And all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. So the reading of God's word. You may be seated. And as you do, we have kingdom kids today. So those... Kiddos who are four years old through second grade can head to the back for Kingdom Kids and meet our Kingdom Kids workers over there. And if you haven't had uh, your child participate in Kingdom Kids before, just go with them, get them registered, and they're going to have a great time learning and worshiping at their level over here in the bottom of our education building, where they can be picked up after the service today. Well, as I said, Genesis chapter 12 is a major turning point in the early parts of the story of God. I said last week, uh, and, I, and I probably should have prefaced it with saying this is not something I've come up with. This has kind of been an idea that's been around for a while. Understanding the Bible is one big story told in four parts, or you could say in four chapters. And we see the a beginning and the middle and seeds of the end of those four chapters right here in the book of Genesis. The four chapters are creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Last week we talked about creation and the fall. Today we'll kind of pick up a little bit on the story of the fall in order to talk about redemption. And then next week we'll actually be in the New Testament to see the full redemption that we find in Christ Jesus. But today I want to camp out on some really important passages in the book of Genesis as we look at a man named Abram, who God eventually changed his name to be Abraham. Abram being a name that means an exalted father, and Abraham meaning the father of many. And that is part of Abraham's story. If you know the story at all, you know that's part of Abraham's story is the promise that he would be the father of a great nation, as we just read in Genesis 12, verse 2. So let's pause and let's pray together and let's see what God has for us today. Father God, we come to your word expectant. That throughout history, you have put in the minds of its authors 
what you would have for your people to read for years to come. So God, we are trusting that this Bible, this book is more than just words on a page. They're inspired by your spirit and you speak to us through it. And we want to hear from you. We come into this place today needing a word from you, God. Many come here or are listening or watching online and, and they're struggling. And they come with a lot of heartache or a lot of trepidation and anxiety in their life or a lot of questions about you, about their future. And God, while it's impossible for me to address all of that, I know it is possible for you to speak to each and every one of us through your word. And so, God, I pray that you would do exactly that. That in some major way or even in some small way, when we leave this place today, we will have been changed by your spirit in the word. By your spirit working through the worship and song. By your Holy Spirit's work in our lives as we pray to you. That you change us, you transform us, you make us more and more like Jesus. This is what we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, the, the Bible is telling one big story. It's the story of God and us. And you can divide it into those four chapters. Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. So in creation and fall, what we read is that God created a perfect world in the Garden of Eden. He placed man and woman and, and all these creatures and they were to take care of them and they were to multiply and, and, and fill the place. And of course, we saw that sin entered into the world. There was uh, evil there and, and, and evil finds its way. We have an enemy. And that enemy is able to sneak in in any place and corner of our life to wreak havoc. And the enemy's number one goal is always to put space between God and his creation. That's always the enemy's goal. Whether we talk about Satan or the devil or, or, or his, the fallen angels, the demons that he is in charge of. It's evil trying to do one big thing, which is to put space between us and God. That's his goal. And in the garden, it takes the persona of a, of a snake. And this is, we understand this is, this is Satan at work here. And the space he puts between God's creation and God is to convince the woman that to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, it's not going to turn out bad like God said it would. It's going to be fine. In fact, it's going to be better than fine. You're going to be like God. And I don't know what convincing he did. In the man's life, but he made sure Adam kept his mouth shut and didn't speak up and didn't lead his family well. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. And so the whole thing, sin enters into the world as Satan just is able to put a little space, a little bit of doubt in the minds of God's creation. And so that's where fall comes into place. And as we said uh, last week, I hinted at it, but I want to look at it a little bit more closely in Genesis chapter 3. What we find here is that after sin had entered into the world, if you were here last week, you heard us talk about this. Adam blames God. He blames Eve. Eve blames the snake. Everybody's blaming somebody else. Nobody's taking responsibility for their own part of it. And God says, okay, here's the deal. It's like when a parent enters a room, everybody be quiet and listen. 
about to dole out the punishment. Here's what's going to happen. And you read about the curses. And the curses, a way of understanding a curse is just to say, look, this is the course you set out. This is how it's going to be. This is the natural consequence in God's world of, of disobeying God's word. Here's what's going to happen. And God begins to say this and this and this and this. These are the curses that are going to happen. But he points out one that is a foreshadowing of what is to come in redemption, which is our focus today. But right in the middle of the fall, as curses are being explained to God's people, here's what's going to happen because you've chosen to disobey. Even in that moment, there is hope of redemption. God says in Genesis 3, 13, 15, excuse me, and I will put, uh, nope, that's the wrong one. I thought I had the right one. Let me skip down. I'm going to have to read it. I'm sorry. Yeah, I was 15. See, I doubted myself. I just needed to read a little further. And I will put in enmity, that's always a tough word to say, between you and the woman. He's talking to Adam, obviously, or, or, or the snake. And between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. He will crush your head. One of Eve's offsprings will come along and crush evil. Even though that offspring will have their heel striked by evil itself. Now, there's hope there. Evil will be crushed even as the one who is crushing evil will be injured in some way. See, now we understand that to be a prophetic word of what is to come. That that is Jesus that God is talking about. The one who will come from Eve that will crush evil is Jesus. Even though he is struck by evil, meaning that he is killed, he will have ultimate victory. He will rise again showing that he had power over sin and death. And what that is telling us is right at the beginning of this story, right in the middle of evil that seems to have won and the curses that it produces are being told by God. God is painting a picture of redemption. That there is redemption in the midst of it. Now what does it mean to redeem something? It just means to buy something back, right? Any of you couponers? Do you clip coupons? A few of you, maybe? Like extreme couponers? Anybody? If you have a no, if you have a three-ring binder, raise your hand. No, I'm kidding. But some people do that. I mean, they if, there used to be a show. I don't know if it's still on TV. There used to be a show about extreme couponing. You know, you get all these coupons, and I'm bad about it because Marshall sent me to the store of the coupons. Make sure you use this. 50% of the time, I don't use it. I just forget, and then sometimes it just feels a little weird. It's like, here, will you take this, please? I said, I'm not, a, I'm not big on the coupons. But what does it mean to have a coupon? The store says, listen, we'll give you some money back. We won't charge you the full amount. In the Bible, the word means to buy something back. What is being... Bought back and by whom? What is this story of redemption? Well, right at the beginning of Genesis chapter 3, right in the middle of the curses, there's a word of hope of redemption. 
that God is going to work on our behalf to buy us back from sin and evil in the world. So the question is, how is he going to go about that? How do you go from Eve all the way to Jesus? That's a lot of time there. What transpires? What is God's plan? How does he work out this chapter on redemption? And it really picks up in Genesis chapter 12. This is where the story really gets interesting. You take a guy named Abram. And God calls one guy to be the father of many nations. From whom the world will be blessed. It's a redeeming blessing. But the world is going to be blessed. The first word he speaks to Abraham is go. Leave where you're at. You can't stay here. In order to enter into redemption, into a future that is brighter than the present, in order to move into hope, you have to move. You can't stay here. He says, leave. Go. Go from your country, your people, and your father's household. In short, he's saying, leave all that you know behind and follow after me. It's a pretty significant thing. All, all that Adam's family knew, they, they, they would not have understood God the way that you read the Bible and understand God. They would have had, you know, God's things to appease. God's of the sky and the rain and the water and all these God's of production and, you know, uh, all, all that stuff. That's what they would have believed. And somehow God communicates in the midst of a world that did not understand who he is or what, he, what was expected of them. That God picks this one guy. There's no mention of why. There's no, there's no merit assigned to Abraham and said, you know, Abraham was, was the tallest. He was the best looking. His children were the most behaved. You know, he had the most sheep. You know, there's nothing like that. It doesn't say anything like that. God just picks Abraham. He says, you're going to have to leave where you are to come where I want you to be. I think there's a story in that for us. You want to enter into God's blessed blessedness. You want to enter into God's redemption. You can't stay where you're at. That, that not necessarily a physical move. It may be leaving behind a mindset. Maybe leaving behind family history that does not please God. It may be a whole list of things. But leaving where you are... In order to get to where God wants you to be is a part of this redemption story. The chapter on redemption is not for those who want to stay put in their sin or in their history of disobedience to God or in their family's history of ignoring God. Like That's not where the redemption is going to come from. That's not where the blessing of redemption is going to come from. You're going to have to get up and go to move. But that's a scary thing to do. Abraham is called to leave everything he knows. The land he knows. The people he knows. Most of all, the family that he knows. In order to enter into a more blessed and redemptive future with his creator. We know that he does go. But he goes with a promise. A promise from God. What does God promise him? 
The Lord says, I'm going to make you into a great nation. I will bless you. So it's a direct promise to him. I'm going to bless you with children, which is a good thing. Both now and then. Then it was a good thing. Particularly it was a good thing because if you're going to have land, you're going to have cattle, you're going to have crops, you've got to have somebody to work all that. And so here we go. You've got to have some kiddos to help with that. Still a blessing today, even if you don't do all that stuff. But he says, I'm going to bless you specifically. You're going to become a great nation. He says, I'm going to bless you and make your name great. And you will actually be a blessing to others. In fact, in verse 3, I will bless those who bless you, curse those who curse you. And all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. But you have to go. You have to get up and leave where you're at to enter into a redemptive future with God. And this is where there can be some misunderstanding. And I I point this out fairly often, that Christianity is a very unique and different religion, if you want to call it that, than any other religion in the world. Because so far, we don't have a terribly different story than a lot of other religions. There's a problem between you and the Creator, and you've got to do something about it. Something needs to change. Something needs to happen here in order for there to be redemption. In fact, uh, Abraham is, is the father not only of Christianity, but of Judaism and of Islam. So we have some common themes here. But what is different, if you follow the story all the way through the redemption offered in Jesus, is there's a different way of understanding how we go and approach God to receive the blessing of redemption. There's a different way of getting into that. Than most religious systems of the world. Which will say. Yes. There is a problem. Between you and your creator. And it's up to you to fix it. Abraham would have grown up in a world. That said the way you fix it. Is through offering sacrifices. You offer your grain. You offer your you know, part of your harvest. You offer some of your, some of your stock. Even to the point that some would say. You have to offer your children. That's what you have to do. And on a bad day. Sometimes it sounds appealing. I know. But. Not, not a really wonderful religious system, but that is how they understood God. There is a problem with God. We need something from God, rain, sun, crops, livestock to reproduce. We need something from God, therefore we have to appease God to get what we want. And some of us, that's still how we approach God. We need something from God, therefore I need to go to church. I need to give money to this or that. I need to be a better person. And then I can get what I want from God, whatever it is. See, that's not the religious system. That's not the way in which the Bible lays out this problem of the fall and its solution and redemption. It says you do have to go, but where do you go? You don't go into good works. You don't go into trying to earn or merit redemption. You go to a God who offers it. And you might say, I, I would hope you would say, well, where is that in the story of Abraham? Turn, turn over with me to Abraham chapter 15. Just a couple pages over. And you're going to find um, a pretty interesting story here. One of the things that we can take from Abraham's story is it's unfolding. Just as yours and mine. It's unfolding. 
A relationship with God should be moving forward, but sometimes it takes some time, right? It's not always immediate. It doesn't always happen at once. God makes a promise, and sometimes it takes a little time for him to fulfill that promise because he's making sure that the time is right. He's never early. He's never late. He's always on time. But that can be difficult for us. If God has made you a promise, it can be difficult to hang in there and wait. If you ever had to do that before, you know it can, it can be frustrating. It can even be discouraging at times to know that God has promised you something and yet you're having to wait for His timing, which is often not our timing, right? So what we find in Genesis 12 and 15 and 17 and so on, is we see that God is checking in with Abraham and saying, listen, it's going to happen. I made an agreement or a covenant with you. It's going to, I'm going to fulfill my promise to you. You're going to, this is, these blessings are sure. So we see this in Genesis 15. God is reaffirming. And even in this passage of scripture, he makes a covenant with Abraham to let him know this redemptive future that is yours is secure. Genesis 15.1 reads, After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram says, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me? I remain childless. And the one who's going to inherit my state is Eleazar of Damascus. says someone in his household, but not his child. He says, and Abram said, you have, given me back, you have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. So what does God do to affirm for Abraham that his promises of a redemptive future are sure? We read in verse 4, the word of the Lord came to him again. This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood, will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the skies and count the stars, if indeed you could count them. So shall your offspring be. And before any evidence is given that this is going to happen, we read in verse 6, Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. What did Abraham do to be right with God? He believed the Lord wasn't through his obedience. It was, wasn't through his moral standing. What did he do to get credit to his account that he was right with God? He believed. He believed God at his word. And so in verse 7, God says to Abram, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land and take possession of it. Again, Abraham is struggling, even though he believes. He says, how can I know I will gain possession of it? And this is where it gets, I think, even more interesting because God says, bring me a heifer, a goat, a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. And then Abraham brings all of that. He cuts them in two and arranges the halves 
opposite of each other. And then he falls into a deep sleep. Now what's going on here? You have these animals that God has commanded him to bring. He's cut them in half. He's put them on either side. This was a covenant ceremony. And it seems a little strange or odd to our ears, but this is something that would have been common to Abraham. In fact, this is how you engage in agreement with one another. You know, we, we have some kind of legal agree, agreement. What do we do? We get, we print out papers, documents, we sign them, we get them verified, somebody stamps their approval on it, all that kind of stuff, right? Makes it a legal binding document. We well, didn't have that kind of stuff back in the day. One of the things you do have is a covenant ceremony like this, where you take some animals, you split them, and then what would happen? This is really important. What would happen is you would walk through them. Both parties would walk through them. And what they're saying is, if I break this agreement with you, let what happened to these animals happen to me. If I break my agreement with you, then let me die just as these animals. I mean, this is is a very serious way of saying there's no way then I'm going to go back on my word. And that's what this covenant ceremony is. And so God is engaging in a covenant ceremony, something that Abraham would have known about from his past, from his history, from where he came from. This is the kind of thing they would have done. And God uses that to assure Abraham that God is a God of his word. But there's more to this story than even that. Verse 12, as the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own. That they will be enslaved and mistreated there. He's talking about their time spent as slaves in Egypt. And we'll get to that story soon enough. Verse 14, but I will punish the nation I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. But he says, for you, Abraham, you will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. And in the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here. For the sins of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Don't have time to get into that, but here's where it gets really good. Verse 17, when the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with the blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. And on that day, verse 18, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, to your descendants I will give this land. And then lists all the land. What's happening here? God is passing through these two halves of these annals. What is he saying? He's saying, let it be to me. Abram never passes through. What does that mean? That means God is saying, you can be assured that I will uphold this covenant agreement with you. You put all that together, what what is God saying to Abraham and to us? Is that redemption future that's ahead of you cannot be earned by you. You simply trust that God is the one that secures it for you.
And he says, let what, if this covenant is ever violated, I will pay the penalty. Not you, Abram, not your descendants, not your children. I will pay the penalty if this covenant is ever violated. It's the most secure thing that you can imagine that God is saying, this life with me, this blessed future redemption that I have for you, I will carry the weight of it. So when we approach God and we feel like it's up to us, it's not. And when we wonder or even doubt that God is going to fulfill his end, we don't have to. Because the very thing that God is saying here did take place. The covenant was violated, not on God's end, but on our end. Not living up to God's commands. And what does God do? He makes good on this promise, on this covenant. He passes through the pieces. In other words, when the covenant's violated, God pays the price. God the Son steps into human history to go to the cross for us, paying the price of the covenant violated. So what is He doing? He's redeeming us. He's paying our debt. He's buying us back. What Abraham did was he simply stepped into that believing God. And the righteousness that came with redemption was his. Not because he earned it, but because he stepped into it believing God. It's no different for us today. How do we step into a redemptive future with God and the blessings that come with that? We believe that God is the one who has lived up to his end of the deal and ours. And therefore, we get the credit of righteousness and our sins are forgiven. Some of you have heard me explain it like this before, but I'll do it again because I think it's a helpful way to understand even what's happening here in this covenant relationship and how it plays out in the life of Jesus. But I think it's something akin to if you walk into your bank and you've got the bank representative sitting in front of you and they say to you, you know, you owe us a million dollars. Now, for some of you, maybe that's no big deal. But if I were in that position, I would be sweating. There would be a problem with that because, you see, I don't have a million dollars. I can't possibly pay that debt that I owe. Now, it would be a pretty good-sized miracle if the person in front of me said, you know what, I'm going to take care of this for you. You don't owe anything. You're free and clear to just walk out of here and your account will be set to zero. The relief would wash off pretty quickly when I realized I still have no money. Good thing the debt was paid, but I still have bills to pay next month. I still have food to buy, 
So I've rent that's due. What, what do I do with all of that? If I got myself in a million dollars, obviously, if I got myself into that kind of debt, there's some kind of trouble with money. And it's not going to get a whole lot better if I don't have something in the account. Now imagine walking back in and saying, you've done me a great favor, but what do I do now? And the representative from the bank sits in front of you and says, well, you make a good point. You're uh, free of debt, but now you've got no money in the bank. Here's what I'll do. I'll put a million dollars in the account. Now, that would never happen, but just imagine if it did. Debts are forgiven. We have a, a relationship with God that we need to uphold our end of the deal, and we don't. Therefore, we incur a, a debt of sin. On our account is a debt we cannot possibly pay. It's too high. We owe too much. We have violated God's trust too many times. We can never rebuild that relationship. And what Jesus is doing, he's upholding our end of the deal. He's saying, you know what? There was a penalty assigned with this covenant between God and Abraham's offspring. The penalty is death. And Jesus pays that debt for us. Our bank accounts reset to zero. But here's the incredible thing is that not only do we get our debts forgiven in Jesus, but Jesus lives a perfect life. He earns the credit on our behalf. Our bank account is filled up with the righteous deeds of Jesus. That when God the Father looks at you and me, He does not see who we are or who we once were. He sees Jesus' credited righteousness to us. God now relates to you and me as he would relate to his own son who is perfect. That's how he sees us. That's how he treats us. When you pray, when you open the Bible to hear God talk to you, when you come to church, when you blow it, when you ask for forgiveness for the millionth time, God is treating you as he would his own son, Jesus, who is perfect. That's what it means to have righteousness credited to us. That all the right things Jesus did gets counted in the ledger on our behalf. In the language of covenant and Abraham and all the things that are going on, the penalty for violating the covenant Jesus paid and all the blessings that are to come through the covenant that God made with Abraham are ours. So the question I think that causes us to ask is how do we then respond to a God who has done this for us? Well, the first thing we do is we receive it. The first part of going is to receive it. Is Abraham to believe it? To trust it? And I would venture to guess there are at least a few here this morning that maybe your relationship with God has been you trying to earn that right standing with Him. You trying to appease Him. You trying to make Him happy. And the first step is to say, I put all that self-effort aside and I simply look to Jesus to be enough for me to be right with God. Not how sorry I feel, not only any of the penances I do, not only the good works that I've tried to do, not, not my church attendance, however important that is, and it is. None of that. I'm looking to Jesus. And that first step into that relationship with God 
is to accept that Christ is enough for you. But see, that's not just a first step in the journey. It's really a part of the journey. Some of us forget that in our life with God. We've been a Christian for a long time and we're still relating to God this way. We still are putting ourselves the responsible party to manage this relationship with God so that he'll be happy with us and there's things we want from God so we do this and that and we're trying to we're trying to broker a deal we're trying to make things work we're trying to trying to do uh, our end of the bargain and we're, and we're relating to God in, in a way that he's showing us in the life of Abraham it's not through you keeping covenant with me it's through grace that I will keep the covenant with you. It's not based on your faithfulness to me. It's my faithfulness to you. And to, relate, and to relate to God out of that. And here's why that's important. Because if you don't relate to God out of that, one of two things are going to happen. One is you're going to work super hard to be a super good person. And when you get any progress in that, you'll look down on everybody else who couldn't live up to that. And or... You'll constantly fail, constantly feel the weight of guilt and shame on your shoulders that Jesus died to take away. And you'll feel the distance between God. And you'll think it's up to you and you can't possibly do it. Either way, the enemy is winning in that game. Either way, he's getting his way. Because putting distance between us and God. What Abraham shows us is that when we get credited with the righteousness of God, it comes not through activity, self-effort. It comes through faith. Believing God. To be a God who upholds His end of the covenant and our end. That we might have a right relationship with Him. You know what? When we get that perspective and that frame of reference with our relationship with God, is that everything we do out of that to serve Him and to love other people comes from a genuine place. It's not to be impressive and it's not to deal with our own guilty feelings. It's just a sense of love that I have received unconditional love. And therefore I give that unconditional love because the conditions have been met in Jesus. And that redemption that we have in Christ, we find all the way back in Genesis 3 and Genesis 12 and 15 and 17. And that's where we're at right now. We're in the middle of this redemptive chapter in history, looking ahead to what God has for us. And the way we operate now and into the future is out of a place of grace. And if you don't have it, it's yours. God offers it to you. You just simply receive the grace and trust and faith. You just say, tell God, yes, God, I'm trusting that Jesus is enough for me. He died for me. I can't make myself right with you, but you have done it in him. You do that and you come into a relationship with Jesus. That's also how you live your life every day thereafter. Let's pray.
Father, that you are a God that steps into human history after you have created all that there is. It's really an incredible thing that you would choose people like Abraham and Sarah to start a nation, imperfect people like us, people who struggled to believe and who didn't make the right decision all the time, and yet they they found a way to continue to trust in that by itself a grace from you. God, that this is our story too. We're wrapped up in this story of redemption. That through your son Jesus, you have bought us back from sin and death, and you've given us a glorious future and and restoration that we look forward to in heaven. God, thank you. And that's who you are. That's what you've done for us. And my prayer, Father, is that every person will be assured of that. Because if they are, it can never be taken from them. They never did enough right to earn their way in, and they can't do enough wrong to get kicked out. It's all grace, all the way through, that we might be right with you, forgiven and made right with you. And I pray that we would know that to our core and we would live out of that reality. This is what I pray for us today. In the name of Jesus, amen.